grab a Bible, open it to James chapter 5, and we'll get going. There's an old pastor story that goes something like this. There was once an exceedingly wealthy man who lived on top of a hill. Upon hearing that his chauffeur had resigned, he set out to hire a new one. So after a series of questions, this rich man takes the first applicant to this big curve on the way up the hill. And he asks this applicant, when I leave my house and when I come home, I like to go really, really fast. How close can you get me to the edge of the cliff and keep me safe? The first applicant says, sir, I've been driving for a really long time. I'm very confident. I can get with you within two feet of the edge. Similarly, he takes the second applicant to the big curve and asks the same question. The second applicant answers, sir, I have a lot of experience. I've done this before. I believe I can get you within one foot of the edge. Finally, the man takes the third applicant to the big curve and asks him the same question. The applicant looks at the man, looks at the edge, looks back to the man and asks, why would you want to get close to the curve? The third applicant sees a danger. He sees a warning. Going fast is one thing. Getting close to danger is quite another. Beloved, there are times in life when we need to hear warnings. We need to heed warnings. We need to be made aware that the cliff is steep. And getting close to it might be dangerous. And getting over the edge might not just cause trouble. It might be deadly. We need to be reminded of warnings. And to be fair with you, the Bible has a lot of them. This morning, as we step into the fifth chapter of the book of James, we're going to find a warning passage, a warning passage that exists to show us a steep curve somewhere where our faith could totally be derailed if we're not careful. And so James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, James, the servant of Jesus, wants to show us this warning that we might become mature, just as he's been doing this whole letter. I've called this whole series Portraits of Maturity, because what it does for us is it locates the book of James within a a place that's written to believers in Jesus Christ, people who've already believed in Jesus Christ, they've trusted him unto salvation, And now he's calling you towards maturity so that you would understand what maturity looks like. He gives you these images, pictures for you to go, that's what it looks like to be mature. Because what it does for us as believers is it reminds us that people who have been called to the Lord, who have submitted their lives to the Lord, are being transformed into the image of our Lord. So we'd be reminded that the Lord who saves us transforms us. We'd be reminded that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only the means by which we will be physically resurrected, but is a picture of our spiritual resurrection as we walk now to be reminded that we who were once dead are now made alive in Christ. And that alive looks different than the dead. Jesus wants to continue to grow us and mold us and shape us. 
And so as we step into James 5 this morning, we're going to be reminded of that maturity. We're going to be reminded that we're called to grow up. We're going to be reminded of what he's doing for us. So as we head into James 5, let's pray about our time in his word. Gracious Father, thank you so much for how you love us. Thank you so much for the mercy and grace that you have shown us in your Son. Thank you so much that you who have begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Thank you that you are in process of growing and maturing each of us up so that we might be mature. Father, I pray this morning that you would use your word to grow us up. That you'd use your word to mature us. That we might be convicted of our sin. Not just so that we'd feel guilty, for that is Satan's playground. But that we would live a life transformed into the likeness of Jesus. That we'd be built up, we'd be encouraged, and we'd be refreshed. Father, would you do that with your word this morning? We trust you to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James is going to warn us now about money. It's a sensitive topic. You want to be careful with it. But that's what the text gives us. He's going to give us now a picture of maturity and money. Let's jump into James 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich. Let's pause. If you have your Bible open, and I hope you do, that's one of the reasons why we put them in all the pews. So you might walk through the Bible with us. You might look at your Bible and notice if you go about an inch up or so, depending on your Bible, and you look at chapter 4, verse 13, you would find this phrase, come now. James uses it twice, here in chapter 4 and then in chapter 5. It could also be translated, now listen. James is trying to put before you a confrontation. James is going to act prophetically here as if he's going to call you out, just like he did in chapter 4. It's a little bit like when you're a child and your dad asks you to come sit in his office, or like when you get a note that you need to go see the principal. Maybe that's just me that happened to. But there's a confrontation that's going to happen here. James writes, come now you rich. Now we want to be careful with this. Because we often make this distinction, I think it's true here. There's a difference between struggling with sin and identifying in it. Let me say that again. There's a difference in struggling with sin and identifying with it. Now what we see it here is having money, being rich, is not sinful. Identifying with it is. We're going to see that played out in this chapter. There's a difference with struggling and identifying with something. We want you to have that distinction because as a believer in Jesus Christ, to identify in anything other than Jesus Christ is idolatry. 
And beloved, we have to so watch our hearts and our lives to figure out what is it that we really worship. Is it Jesus or is it something else? So in James writing to believers, I've asserted that that whole book now writes, come now you rich. He's writing to an identity that's not Jesus. I hope you're following that. Because we're going to see he's carrying forward this attitude that Pastor David helped us to see last week in chapter 4. If you were here with us, it's that that very me-focused attitude. It's that me-first, me-centered, rather than God-focused, God-centered. It's the attitude that doesn't take God into consideration in its planning. Pastor David walked us through that beautifully last week. So James is going to continue to address that me-centeredness, taking it to the next level of idolatry. He's going to confront it. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. What James wants to do in his confrontation is to step into this identity and project it out. He wants you to see the end game. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. These words, weep and howl, though they're actually found, if you look at the Septuagint, you find these same words used in the Old Testament, used consistently amongst the Old Testament prophets when they want to give you a reaction to to judgment or condemnation. So what James is trying to point to here is this condemnation that's coming, this misery that is coming. A misery that is not earthly or temporary. A misery that's eternal. James is putting before us the futility of the idolatry of money. Of making money our idol. He continues on. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Beloved, James is not holding back on us at all. He wants us to hold on to the reality that he painted before us in chapter 4. He wants us to be reminded that our life is like a mist. We appear for a little while and then we vanish. Friends, we need to be reminded that this life is temporary and everything you collect here will vanish. I remember as a child, we bought our first computer. Some of you will know this, you'll know these days. By that, I mean my dad bought the computer. I didn't have any money. Mid-80s, I'm sorry, my dad bought an IBM PC Junior. If my memory serves me correct, it had a 13-inch monitor that only showed up in black and yellow. It didn't have a hard drive. It took 5-inch floppy disks and took cartridges. Now, the challenge to this kind of computer is you couldn't save anything to it. Now, I tell you that because I got a game. I bought a game at a store. And for kids, you need to know that this is real. So you put the five-inch disc in the computer and you had to type in things like walk west, enter. And then it would describe for you the scene. 
you've come into an area filled with trees. There are many birds, and there's a key on the ground. And you kind of had to imagine what that looked like. So I'd get consumed by this game. For hours, I'd play this game going, I collected a key. I have some arrows. I have a magic book. I, You know, you collect all this stuff. Well, here's the problem. At the very end, we had no means to save it. So then you'd be done. You had to turn it off. Everything you collected disappears. Well, that's life. You don't get to take any of it with you. You don't get to save it. We can all be built up. We can all decide in our lives that this life is all that matters and miss it. When we make everything about this, we are so tempted to be turned over to idolatry. That's why James would warn us. That's why James would remind us this life is a mist. That's why James wants us to see the futility of the idolatry of money. He wants to remind us, you drive fast around a sharp corner, you might go off it. James warns us. He wants to give us this warning. James is not just worried about the futility of idolatry. He's not just worried about the futility of idolatry of money. He wants to expose you to the reality that when you make something your idol, when you choose to worship something, it messes with your priorities. We see that. We see that shown here in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James wants us to see how idolatry messes with our motives. Friends, nobody wakes up and thinks, you know, I should start cheating my workers today. It's a slow erosion. It's a slow erosion that begins with a misrepresentation, a misunderstanding of our priorities. When money starts, stops being a tool for life and starts becoming an idol, acquiring money becomes the most important thing, such that even important things like people start to lose their value to us. We're able to sacrifice people at the altar of money. That's what matters the most. So you hire field hands and decide, you know, if we don't pay them, we could get a little further. If we don't pay them, we could put more down on our house. If we don't pay them, our 401k could grow faster. Our retirement could grow faster. We might even be able to retire earlier. We don't pay people rightly. This is his example. Friends, we need to have our eyes open to the ways that we justify our sin, especially when it benefits us. James wants to show us not just our idolatry, but how our idolatry exposes our motives. And don't get me wrong, I think James is probably pointing out a specific thing that was probably happening around him, but he wants us to see it as a warning. 
He wants to warn you and me and all of the readers of the book of James. For in this particular section, James, who has written this letter to the believers, now takes this little section, and possibly the one before, and chooses to address them to unbelievers. Why does he do that? Because he wants you to be warned. Now keep in mind, James pastors the church in Jerusalem who formerly had members named Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember this story? They want to be something, so they sell land and they give half of the money to the church and they claim they give the whole money to the church and then they die. Like the warning should have existed in the body. Like, at what point could you not stood up and just said, guys, just remember Ananias and Sapphira? Just remember that. You'll be fine. But James wants to continue to exhort the believers. But there's a dangerousness with money if you're not careful with it. Beloved, in this series... We're talking about maturity, a spiritual maturity that has to impact every single part of our lives. And what James is wanting us to see and to understand here is that spiritual maturity is having a right relationship with money. What do I mean by that? I mean, money can't be your master. Consider Jesus in Matthew 6. I've said several times Most scholars think James is a sermon on the Sermon on the Mound. James takes most of his material from the Sermon on the Mound. So this is probably the origins of what James is teaching. Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Do you hear that? It's temporary. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is what James is pointing us to. This is what he's trying to help us see, the futility of the idolatry of money. Let's keep going. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We'll touch back on that. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Jesus does in Matthew 6, preaching on a mount for the disciples and the believers and for all of us to hear, is He lays out a thermometer. So that you might be able to take your temperature. If you follow that text, you'll see you have an income. What do you do with it? How will you worship? Verses 22 and 23, Jesus uses this illustration to tell you that how you use money reveals what you worship. Your aim is laying up treasure... You follow the illustration. Your eye is bad. 
Your eyes bad, you're unhealthy. That's the illustration. Your eyes good, laying up treasures in heaven, it's healthy. You'll be healthy. What you do with money reveals what's going on in your heart. So, quick pause, let's be practical. Is this telling you not to save money? Somebody say no. No. Is it telling you not to save for your retirement? No, that would actually be terribly unwise. It'd be poor planning. What it is telling you is, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's your litmus test. Do you care more about Schwab or fidelity than your Bible? Thank you. What do you look at more? Like when you wake up in the morning, if Bell Bank is like, ooh, Bell, I'm so excited. I can't wait to see what Fidelity says. Is it green? Is it red? Like that reveals where your heart is. Now, I want to tell you with some great honesty, you could have $173 trillion in your account. And if you wake up giddy about God's word and you don't care about that, that's not your driving treasure, but the Lord is, it's great. Like the Bible's not telling you not to have things. The Bible's telling you what you do with them, what you worship is what's important. That's what God cares about. That's what the warning is for. It's for your idolatry. So if you hear this and you walk away going, I mean, we got like two grand in our account. We better give it away. I mean, we don't want to be idols. You're hearing me wrongly. If you got $175 in your account and you worship it, you're in the wrong. That's what Jesus is trying to help us see. That's what James is trying to warn you about. That this worship of money will lead you so astray. It'll mess with your motives. You stop honoring your workers. You stop loving the people around you because you're so motivated by that. That's what Jesus and James are trying to warn you about. They're trying for you to see this barometer, this thermometer that reveals your heart. The idea of a treasure reveals your master. Verse 24. For no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Beloved, there's room in your soul for one throne. One throne. You get to worship one thing. I think what the Bible would do for us is help clarify what is that thing. Is it Jesus? Is it possessions? Is it finances? Oh, we could justify it all the way we want. We could be all into, you know, it's, it's security, Ben. I study this every day because I want to be secure. Beloved, Jesus is a better security. I want to be safe. Beloved, Jesus is a better safety. 
I want to plan well. Jesus is better planning. I'm not telling you not to have a 401k. Telling you not to worship it. James is warning us against the love, the worship of money. To help us a little bit more, I want us to consider 1 Timothy 6. You're probably familiar with verse 10. I want to start in verse 9 because it's going to expand the picture for us. 1 Timothy 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Those who desire to be rich. That's a helpful phrase. Beloved, there's nothing inherently evil about money. Verse 10, often misquoted, reminds us it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money that leads us to the idolatry of money. It's the love of money that leads us to worship money. Back to verse 9. Desiring to be rich, you fall into temptation. Should I pay my workers what they're worth? Do you see what James is doing here? Desiring to be rich, you fall into temptation. You get caught in a snare. You know, I could probably profit off these people. I could probably make a lot of money by abusing them. It's exactly what James is forecasting for us. That this desire to be rich does evil things to our hearts. We cannot endure the motives that it will create in us. But you cannot harbor an idolatry of money without enduring ruin and destruction. That's what James forecasts for us. That brings us to the end of verse 10. And hear the warning clearly. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Sometimes we need to stop and just behold our Bible and remember James was a pastor. James writes this because he's watching people do this. So he sees the church and goes, church, be careful, be careful of that. It's happening. Timothy is a pastor. Pastoring the church at Ephesus. Watching people do this. To such a degree, he's going, Whoa, church, be really, really careful with this. For many have wandered away from the faith. That's why seven verses later, Paul gives this exhortation to Timothy for Timothy to pass on. 1 Timothy 6.17 Command. You know, when you hear the word command, it's not like suggest. It's not like offer this as a reasonable possibility. C- 
command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Beloved, we should at this point be thoroughly warned about the dangers of money. At this point, you should thoroughly desire a healthy spiritual view of money. You should, at some level, at least be exhorted to not be worshiping the role of money in your life. You should at least be mindful that I need to pay attention to the role of money in your life. If you're not, if there's something wrong with your soul. If it starts to rule you, if it's ruling over you, beloved, confess it. Be warned, repent. What Timothy wants to put before you, if you see this 617, it's a beautiful statement of the reality of the gospel. And on one hand, I want to comfort you as Americans. Because if you don't recognize that you're the richest people in the world, it's be foolish not to. Command those who are rich. Do you see he's not challenging you for having things? Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Why? Because you're going to be so tempted to believe, look what I did. I did this. My hard work built this. Look at me. As if you need, deserve, worship. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. Beloved, we're going to be so tempted to believe, you know, I'm secure. And I'm secure because of my savings account. You know, I've been following Dave Ramsey for a while. My safety net is packed. I've got, you know, five months. We're safe. We're secure. Do not put hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. You could triple underline that today if you want. I mean, what's gas price today? What's it going to be in two weeks? A friend of mine just posted, hey, feel good about this. Gas in Germany is nine bucks a liter. Like it's going. Housing market, maybe going up and down. Who knows? Wealth is uncertain. But here's the gospel. But to put their hope in God. Not this world. Not your wealth. Not the futility, the emptiness of this stuff. But the Lord Jesus. We got to see, friends, that this world is a taskmaster. It will abuse you. It will disappoint you. It will ruin you. And Jesus will do none of those things. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with, richly provides us with, 
richly provides us with. Do you see that in Jesus you will lack nothing? Do you see how Jesus is a better hope? Do you see how Jesus is a better security? I like you, Nick. Paul's wanting to contrast for us an earthly security with a heavenly security. To recognize that our hope in Jesus is sufficient for our salvation. Our hope in Jesus is sufficient for eternity. But beloved, our hope in Jesus is sufficient for provision. It's sufficient for safety. It's sufficient for security. My favorite passage, it's not on the slides, is 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9 has become my favorite passage. Because it reminds us, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The beauty of 2 Corinthians 9 is it's in a passage on giving. Paul actually exhorts the Corinthian church, give more away, so it'll be more evident to you that God's faithful. Give more away, be more generous. In fact, you want to figure out if you've got an idol, become generous. Become really generous and you'll figure out your view of money. Because what Paul would exhort the Corinthians is, in your generosity, you'll figure out Jesus is sufficient for meeting your needs. It ain't you. Beloved, James warns us about idolatry of money. Timothy, well, Paul, writing to Timothy, warns us about idolatry to money. And I think they both would call us to a spiritual maturity to recognize the role that money should have in our lives. That it's a tool, and that's it. But we turn to Jesus for our provision, for our safety, for our security. It's Jesus that we worship. And beloved, just like every other week as we've looked at these pictures of maturity, we should recognize that some of us, and just so we're clear, when I say some of us, I always mean me. Some of us have some parts of this we should confess. Like it's maturity, like this is the full grown-up view. Some of us are just teenagers. Some of us are preteens. Some of us are toddlers. We're all trying to figure it out. So when we come to God's word and we're warned, but don't get overrun, don't feel condemned, for the gospel does not condemn you. Satan does. He's the great accuser. So if you feel some sense of in your heart, like, hey, I think we may be wrong here. Hey, I think I'm, I think I'm out of line. I think I'm worshiping money. I think I'm worshiping my job. My, I think my identity has become this. What do you do? But you confess it. You confess it. We've come back to 1 John 1, 9 several times. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But never, ever, ever miss the gospel in any of this. 
Because Jesus just wants to refresh you. He wants to tell you I got something better for you. So as we close, I want you just to take a couple of moments just with you and your soul to just pray. Lord, if I'm an heir in this place, would you just reveal it to me? Not that I would be condemned, but that I might be transformed. And I'll pray for us. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Father, there are so many temptations in our lives that slowly distract us and pull us away from you. Money can be one of those things. Father, I pray for me, my family, our church, that you would mature us in our view of money. That you'd mature us to not be identified with it. To not find our hope in it. To not be abused by it. But Father, that you would make us to be a generous people who live in your good provision for us. Father, for any of us who are living really deep in this, pray, Father, that you would silence the accuser. I pray, Father, that you bring conviction and grace and mercy and transformation. Father, that we could walk free in Jesus Christ. That we could walk free with you as our only master. And that we could worship you and you alone. Father, we thank you for your word and how it meddles into every part of our life. Because you love us. And we're thankful for God who cares so much about the little things of our lives that you'd give us everything so that we might enjoy you. Father, we turn to you and we worship you. May it be even in these last several songs we sing. Father, we could worship you as the great provider of all of our needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.